0: everything that you can influence itself turns out to be dividable into these two categories, the bit that you do control completely and the bit that you don't control at all.
1: Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have, This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. He's currently the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. Massimo's research interests include the philosophy of science, the relationship between science and philosophy, the nature of pseudoscience, and the practical philosophy of stoicism. He's the author and editor of many books, including the one discussed here, A Field Guide to Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living.
3: Hi, Massimo. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here.
3: I am happy to have you on. We are going to be discussing your book called A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. But before we start with that, let's start the way we normally do with the parable. In the parable, there's a grandparent who's talking with their grandchild, and they say in life there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And grandchild stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at their grandparent and says, well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, the one you feed. (laughs) So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting parable. I mean, I suppose the basic idea is that there are different aspects to human nature in this particular case too. And that it is up to us to some extent to feed, so to speak. The aspect that we want to nurture. And I mean, there is quite some truth in, in, in that. Um, a lot of philosophical traditions seem to focus on one or the other. You know, some philosophers, like Thomas Hobbes, for instance, famously thought that human beings are nasty, brutish, you know, and our life would be very short if we were not under the authority of, of an absolute ruler. So that would be one side that we feed on a regular basis. Other philosophers, like uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau, thought exactly the opposite that human beings are naturally good. And that it's society, actually, that ruins us, right? Mm -hmm. As a biologist, especially, I think that a much better and more realistic understanding is that we really have a combination of both natures, and they interact in complex ways. And I think, however, that something can be said, in fact, a lot can be said for the fact that we do have choices of which side do we feed and how. And so ultimately, we are responsible for what comes out uh, of our nature, even though we have this kind of mixed heritage.
3: Yeah, yeah. You are a, I think you would use this description of yourself, a modern Stoic um, and you're you're sort of working to reinterpret Stoic philosophy for modern times. Could you, for listeners, share to you what that term Stoicism means?
0: Well, Stoicism is a framework, is a way of looking at life that is supposed to be helping you just like any other philosophy of life, uh, or in fact, for that matter, any religion. Mm-hmm. Buddhism is another such framework. Uh, Christianity is one such framework. So Stoicism is one way of looking at life, setting priorities, figuring out what is important and what is not, and, and generally try to navigate your life in the best way possible. In fact, every such framework also provides you with some kind of idea what best means. You know, what what is a good life? Depending on which philosophy or, or religion you subscribe to, that means different things. If you are an Epicurean, for instance, a good life is one in which you reduce pain to a minimum, especially mental pain. If you're a Stoic, a good life is one in which you use reason to solve problems and in particular to improve society. And the reason for that is because the Stoics think that the two fundamental aspects of human nature that distinguish human nature from any other animal on Earth is the fact that we are highly social and the fact that we are capable of sophisticated reasoning. So once you put the two things together, then a satisfying, you know, good human life, human life worth living is one in which you actually use your brain to improve society at large.
3: You talk about eight years ago or so that you said, my life changed instantly and for the better when you first read a particular philosopher. Who
0: was that? That philosopher was Epictetus, who was a late first century, early second century uh, Roman stoic. In fact, that wasn't actually even his name. We don't know his name. Epictetus just means acquired Mm. because he was a slave. And he started out his life in Hierapolis, which is in modern-day Pamukkali in western Turkey, a highly recommended place to go and visit. It's a UNESCO International Heritage Site, just gorgeous. And then it was acquired by the personal secretary of the emperor Nero, and so he was brought to Rome. And he lived part of his life in Rome, eventually was freed, as it was not unusual for particularly promising slaves. He studied philosophy with uh, a major Stoic philosopher of the time, Musonius Rufus, and then eventually he started teaching uh, his own brand of Stoicism. Now, one of the interesting things that happened was that the Stoics in general, and Epictetus in particular, had this penchant to, as we would say today, speak truth to power. And as we know, power usually doesn't like to be spoken truth to. <laughs> and so in that particular case, uh, the emperor in charge at the moment was Domitian, and Domitian didn't really appreciate these, uh, these Stoics going around telling him that he was unvirtuous and that he wasn't doing the right thing. So at some point, he actually promulgated an edict according to which every philosopher, especially the Stoics, were kicked out of Italy. And uh, that included, of course, Epictetus. And Epictetus moved to Nicopolis, which is a town that still exists today on the northwestern coast of Greece. Once there, he reestablished his school, and the joke was on the mission because... Epictetus' school became one of the most sought-after the Roman aristocracy who sent their kids to study with Epictetus. And later emperors like Adrian became regular visitors. So, So this is a guy that went from literally the lowest possible rank of society, you know, being a slave, to being one of the most renowned and respected teachers of antiquity. And the reason he spoke to me particularly is because he's, very clear when he speaks, uh, he's very no-nonsense, uh, there is no ambiguity in what he says, he tells you exactly what he what he thinks, and you don't need any background in philosophy to understand what Epictetus is telling you. And also, he has a wicked sense of humor bordering on sarcasm, and I, I appreciate uh, <laughs> that. You know, he didn't write any books, just like Socrates, he didn't write anything, but we have two books, sort of by him, one is called The Discourses, which is a long book in four volumes, and the other one is a very short short thing called The Enchiridion, or The Manual for Life. And actually, these books were put together by one of Epictetus' students, Arian of Nicomedia. Now, I have to tell you, as a teacher myself, I would be really worried if I knew that the only thing that survived in terms of my writings were notes taken by one of my students. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, do I, do I do I trust this thing? But it turns out that that Arian of Nicomedia was actually a pretty uh, interesting guy in and of himself. He wrote a biography of Alexander the Great. He was the governor of the Roman province of Cappadocia in modern Turkey. So he was a you know serious guy, and so we we hope that what he wrote down is close enough to what Epictetus actually taught. But the interesting things about those books, especially the Discourses, is that you really hear Epictetus talking because Arian didn't write down the lecture part. So the, the, in, in antiquity, what a typical teacher would do, we do lecture during the day, and then in the evening or late afternoon, he would have sort of these open discussion sections, with, sessions with his students. And what Arian did, well, it was, he transcribed some of these. Mm. So we have a series of conversations between Epictetus and his students where the students ask questions and Epictetus answers. And so you get a really interesting sense of sort of, the the lively exchange uh, between teachers and students. And I was just, I got hooked as soon as I started reading uh, the Discourses.
3: Now, it is not the Discourses, it's the other book of which I'm not going to... Thank you. I'm staying away from that pronunciation. Listeners know I, I struggle with pronunciation, so I'm staying away from that one. But it was that book that you sort of adapted as I understand it, to create this field guide to a happy life. It's your sort of modern version
0: of that book. Correct. So The Enchiridion, which is typically translated as just as handbook, it's a very short book. It's like 53 paragraphs, basically. I mean, they're, they're called 53 sections, mm. but each section is only a paragraph for sometimes two or three, but but not more than that. And it's meant to be a summary of Epictetus' teachings. So one common mistake, actually, that people do is that when they approach Stoicism is, oh, they see the, the Enchiridion is very short, so it's like, oh, let me start with that one. Bad idea, because it's short, yes, but it's very condensed. It's a very dense little booklet. If you don't actually have background in... In Stoic philosophy, you're likely either not to understand what you're reading or even worse, to misunderstand what you're reading. Nevertheless, once you have the basics, it's really a very handy thing to do. In fact, it it was uh, meant to be brought with you and, and then consulted on a regular basis. The reason I focused on the Enchiridion is because it was highly influential not just in ancient Stoicism, but really throughout medieval and early modern history. So to give you a couple of examples... The Enchiridion was used by Christian monks throughout the Middle Ages as a manual for spiritual exercises, with the only change that every time that uh, Epictetus mentions Socrates, they replaced it with Jesus. But other than that, (laughs) it was was the same thing. And uh, in fact, even in modern times, the Enchiridion has been influential on people that you might not necessarily associate with the Stoics. For instance, most of the American founding fathers, from George Washington uh, to Thomas Jefferson to Benjamin Franklin... All of them had their personal copies of the Encaridion, annotated. Washington even brought the Encaridion in battle and read it as an inspiration Mm. before getting into, into action. So it has been a very influential book essentially for almost two millennia. And then what happened was that at the beginning of the 20th century both Stoicism in general and Epictetus in particular kind of got forgotten. Philosophy became more of a technical profession, you know, with the rise of the modern academy. You know, this is what I'm doing now. I'm in, I'm in my office now, and I normally don't do uh, ancient philosophy when, I, when I'm here at City College. I do philosophy of science, which is a very specific, very technical field. And so in the 20th century, kind of Epictetus and Stoicism went into a little bit of an eclipse. And I think that's unfortunate. Uh, fortunately, Stoicism has been revived. You know, tension has been revived mm-hmm. over the last twenty years or so. And my intention with uh, writing The Field Guide to Happy Life was twofold. On the one hand, to bring back Epictetus to the attention of a general public, because I think he deserves it. He has been one of the most influential philosophers of literally the last two millennia, and he's a very practical philosopher. There is quite a bit, even if you disagree, which I do, with some of the things that he writes, they're certainly inspirational and they're certainly worth uh, thinking about. The other goal was to update Stoicism. You know, that may sound a little weird, but if you think about it, Stoicism started out near the end of the fourth century BCE in Athens. So it's more than, you know, it's almost two and a half millennia old. And, you know, every other tradition that you can think of, let's say Christianity or Buddhism, again, as examples, they have changed over the last two or two and a half millennia, right? I mean, nobody is a Christian today in the way in which people were Christian two millennia ago. Even if you consider yourself a so-called fundamentalist Christian, you're still nowhere near uh, what Christianity was uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. Same goes for Buddhism. I mean, modern Buddhists are of a variety of types, for one thing. Buddhism has evolved so much as a Uh, set of traditions that we really should be talking about Buddhisms in the plural, because they're they're very different uh, subsets of it. Yes. Now, the problem with stoicism, on the other hand, is that it kind of got interrupted. It started out as said, at the end of the 4th century BCE, and then it flourished throughout the Roman Republic and Roman Empire. But then it kind of stopped with the 2nd or 3rd century. I mean, the last big Stoic we know of is Marcus Aurelius, who died in the year 180. We know of a few other Stoic teachers after that, but not much. Why? Well, probably for a variety of reasons, but, you know, the same happened to all the other Hellenistic and Greek uh, schools. The last one to close down was the Plato's Academy in the 5th century. Basically, the major reason probably, arguably, is the rise of Christianity. You know, once the Christianity, and not only Christianity, became very popular and kind of replaced or at least competed directly with these other philosophies. But once the Christians got hold of the Roman army, they became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Then they started using that army uh, to really shut down everybody, everybody else. So then Stoicism got interrupted, let's say, in the second or third century. It did still have an influence throughout this these intervening time. As I mentioned, you know, Christian monks were using the Enchiridion, but all the major Christian writers from of Tarsus uh, to Thomas Aquinas, all of them were familiar with the Stoics, and all of them actually engaged with the Stoicism, it took something out of, of Stoicism, and incorporated it in their own version of Christianity. The early modern philosophers from René Descartes to Baruch Spinoza were all influenced by the Stoics. So it's not like Stoic thought went away, but Stoicism as a school did. Mm. And so the question then is, well, here we are now at the beginning of the 20th, well, no longer the beginning, the, the <laughs> second decade of the 20th century, And then what are we going to do? Are we going to really be Stoics or interested in Stoicism in the way in which Seneca or Marcus Aurelius were 2,000 years ago? That doesn't seem reasonable. And then the question is, therefore, what would a modern Stoicism look like? What is it that we want to change? What is it we want to keep and and why?
3: Yeah, we're not going to obviously in the time we have talk about Epictetus, we're not going to talk about the 53 lessons for living and all of Stoicism, but let's hit <laughs> a couple of Stoic Principles, and I think that one of the underlying ones is you know, cardinal virtues. Yes. Share a little bit about those.
0: The cardinal virtues, which were actually not introduced originally by the Stoics, the Stoics took them on and, and then as an idea, and they became a, a, a point of reference for Stoics. But in fact, the first mention of the four cardinal virtues is found in Plato's Republic, so it actually predates the Stoics. The cardinal virtues are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Practical wisdom is a kind of an awful word it really doesn't roll off your tongue very well. The original term in Greek is phronesis, uh, and it used to be translated from the Latin as prudence. But prudence in modern English means something different, so we're not going to use that word. Uh Practical wisdom. So practical wisdom is the ability to navigate complex situations in the best possible way. So if somebody is practically wise or prudent, as we used to say, uh, it it means that that person has a good notion of how to balance Different things, how to manage trade-offs, and especially has, according to the Stoics, has a good understanding of priorities: what is really important for that person, and what is not important, what that person should go after, and what should be avoided, and that sort of stuff.
3: Ironically, our tagline on our website is "practical wisdom for a better life," and I didn't even know there that <laughs> that was one of the cardinal virtues. So uh, I hope it rolls off the tongue okay. <laughs>
0: That's right. <laughs> yes, it's it's uh, not as good as prudence, I think, but it's it will do. It <laughs> all will right, do. all right. Now the second cardinal virtue is courage. We usually associate courage with physical acts, especially you know going into battle. You know, and I would call that bravery more than courage. Courage here has a definitely moral connotation. It's the courage to do the right thing because it may cost you something, and, and so it does take courage to do it. Justice is the virtue that tells you what that right thing to do actually is. Mm-hmm. The Stoics took justice as a virtue that makes you behave in a way toward other people that includes respect, dignity, you behave toward others in the way in which others want to behave toward you. So that's justice. And then temperance is doing things in the right measure, neither too much nor too little. So let me give you an example suppose that tomorrow i come back to work and i see my boss harassing somebody which he would never do he's a nice he's a really nice <laughs> guy but let's say for the sake of discussion that he does so no, the question then is what do i do so i consult the four cardinal virtues practical wisdom tells me that i have to intervene because one of the, my priorities in life is to become a better person cultivate my character, and intervening in situations where I can help others improves my character. Not intervening undermines my character. So practical wisdom says, yep, you got to get in. Courage tells me that, yes, this is a thing to do, and it it will require courage because he's my boss. So there could be consequences. Uh, There could be retaliation. There could be unpleasant uh, situations. Justice tells me that, yes, again, I should intervene. Why? Well, because if I were the one being harassed, I would like somebody to come in and try to diffuse the situation, try to help uh, things out. Now, what about temperance? Well, temperance tells me that, yes, I should intervene, but neither too little nor too much. So I don't want to just mumble something under my breath so that my boss doesn't even hear me. And yet, technically, I've done something, right? Technically, I interviewed. That's not good enough. At the same time, I don't want to jump in and start punching him on the nose because this is not that kind of situation. There is no physical danger. There is nothing like that going on. So that would be an overreaction. So temperance tells me that the right way to intervene is firmly with you know, a calm tone of voice uh, and, and trying to diffuse the situation. And that's the way the Stoics use the four cardinal virtues. Is think of them as, you know, they're called cardinal for a reason, not only because they're most important, but because the, the analogy is with cardinal geography, cardinal points. That is, they orient you mm-hmm. in life. You can use them as a compass to figure out what to do and what not to do. Uh, so that that's how the, the cardinal virtues work.
3: And stoicism in general is pointing at that the highest good is to be and develop virtue?
0: Correct. Although the qualification here is we need to understand exactly what the word virtue is because uh-huh. especially in modern times when you hear virtue uh, most people think of the Christian version of the term, right? Mm-hmm. So things like chastity and purity and things like that. That has nothing to do with what the Greeks and the Romans were actually talking about. Yeah. So the The word virtue actually comes from the Greek arete, and arete is often translated as excellence. So really what we're talking about is the point of Stoicism is to make you into the best human being you can possibly be, the most excellent human being that you can possibly be. Mm. And what does that mean? Well, that means a human being who is a good reasoner. For instance, for the Stoics, reasoning well is a virtue somebody who pays attention to evidence. For the Stoics, paying attention to evidence that is doing what we would today call science is a virtue. And of course, the moral virtues, the four cardinal virtues that I just mentioned. So being an excellent human being for a Stoic means thinking well, paying attention to the evidence, and then trying to become a morally better person. And that, that's a kind of a program behind which I can actually find myself you know, comfortably.
3: So Epictetus is, you'll correct me if I get this wrong, but is, if not the creator, one of the earliest sources of what later became one of the fundamental pieces of wisdom in my life, which is the serenity prayer. Right. Tell me a little bit about Epictetus' version of that and maybe we can you know dive deeper into it because i think there's so much in there
0: modern stoics refer to that as the dichotomy of control which i don't particularly like as a term because the word control is often misinterpreted in this context but probably there's no point in opposing the <laughs> the, the general trend so we'll just call it the dichotomy of control it's not original with epictetus it's found in earlier uh, stoics uh, we find it at least uh, in cicero for instance from the first century before the current era, although Caesar himself was not a Stoic, but he, he was very sympathetic to the Stoics, and he does mention essentially the same concept. Epictetus, however, makes it into a centerpiece of his philosophy, and that's why he's very often associated with it. As you pointed out, however, the same idea pops up in different contexts and different cultures. You find it in 8th century Buddhism, in 11th century Judaism, and in 20th century Christianity, under the Serenity Prayer. So the Serenity Prayer, asks God to give us the wisdom to tell the difference between what we can change and what we cannot change, the courage to change what we can, and the serenity to accept what we cannot, right? And it's often used by 12-step organizations like Alcoholic Anonymous. Now, the Epictetus version goes something like this. Epictetus says that some things are up to us and other things are not up to us, and that a wise person focuses on the things that are up to us and tries to accept the rest with equanimity. The real question there is, okay, but what are these things? What What is up to mm-hmm. us and what is not up to us? Fine. I can get behind the general idea, but, but what about when it comes to the details? And here's where different cultures do different. The Christians will have a different version in terms of details. The Buddhists would have a different version. For the Stoics, the situation is actually fairly simple. It's pretty straightforward. There's only one thing, ultimately, that is up to us, and that's our judgments. That's it. Now, our judgments include... Our priorities, the values that we endorse or reject, every decision we make to act or not to act, all of those are the results of our judgments, right? And fact, Epictetus actually mentions each one of these categories separately, but ultimately it all comes down to judgment. So that's the only thing, according to repetitors, that is in fact up to us, meaning that the buck stops with me if I arrive at a certain judgment. It is true that my judgments may be influenced by others or by external factors, of course, right? But ultimately, if I decide to do or not to do something, like for instance, if I decide to come on your podcast, well, that's my decision. Uh, I can say, well, but I was influenced by so-and-so who told me that this is a really cool guy and it's a great idea. (laughs) Sure, but ultimately the buck stops with me, the Americans say
3: our strong-arm podcast guest tactics. We we made you an offer <laughs> exactly. you couldn't refuse.
0: <laughs> right. But in fact, Epictetus says you could always refuse yeah. offers, right? He actually says, if the tyrant threatens you with your life, well, you still have a choice. Mm-hmm. You can decide to die. Uh, you know, so now mm-hmm. that's a hard choice. He's not saying, you know, he's not minimizing the, the issue. It's a hard choice. Mm-hmm. But when we say, you know, it's funny that nowadays, uh, you know, in, in modern days we say things like, oh, you know, I couldn't have, I didn't have a choice. He pointed a gun to my head. And Epictetus says, so what? You still had a choice. Mm -hmm. You could have said no, and he would have shot you. So what? What that means is that you valued your life more than that particular choice, right? But not that you did not have a choice. And it may very well be reasonable to value your life more than, you know, whatever it is that you are uh, asked to choose. But nevertheless, it is in fact your choice. Everything else, Epictetus says, is not Ultimately, up to you. It kind of works in the reverse. You can influence a lot of other things, but ultimately, you don't control them. What are these other things? Well, pretty much everything. He mentions health, career, reputation, wealth, you know, everything that, you know, relationships, everything matters to us. It's not really up to us. What does that mean? Well, let's say, for instance, Let's talk about ELF. As you pointed out before we started this conversation, You know, last week I happened to pay a visit to the ER and I was in the hospital for three days. Well, that was certainly not my choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, It's like, okay, uh, something happened and, and I have to have doctors looking at it. Now, the question there is what is up to me and what is not up to me, according to Epictetus. Up to me was the judgment that there was something wrong, that was experiencing something sufficiently serious in terms of physical symptoms, that I better go to the ER because I was risking otherwise my life. That choice is up to me. Nobody else can make it for me, unless I'm unconscious. But I was conscious, so uh, I made the choice. I can also make the choice of Following what the doctors and the nurses are telling me to do or not, right? I could I could refuse if somebody says, okay, where well, here's this medication or here's this exam that we want you to do. I could say no, uh, so that's up to my judgment. And then I can, since I was there for three days, it's up to me how to behave to other people, not only nurses and doctors, but also fellow patients, right? Do I want to be cranky and irritable and start yelling at people, or do I want to try to be, you know, a good citizen of the hospital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> and then. Also up to me is how do I wanna spend my time when I'm there and not undergoing either procedures or or exams. So so I asked my wife to bring me my iPad and I, I read and wrote a little bit as much as I could. Those things are up to me because they're all results of my judgments. What is not up to me? Well, pretty much everything else, right? First and foremost, the outcome. Mm -hmm. of all of these procedures and and all, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I could uh, regain my health or not. That is certainly not up to me. The specific consequences of each one of those particular actions is not up to me. The behavior of the doctors and the nurses is not up to me. The behavior of my fellow patients is not up to me. Uh, The functioning of the instrumentation, the medical instrumentation, that's not up to me either. So in other words, All of those other things, all that Stoics call externals, anything that is outside of my judgment, I don't control. I can influence it because, of course, I can talk to my doctor, let's say, and uh, what the doctor is going to say or going to do is going to be influenced by what I say and by how I interact with him. But ultimately, it is his decision. That's his judgment of what to do or what not to do. And that, I find that notion of keeping in mind very clearly, as clearly as possible, where my agency, another way to put it all this thing is where my agency lies and where it doesn't lie, right? So, what I can actually affect and what I cannot. I found that very calming and very useful. In fact, already in the ambulance, when I was going to the hospital, I started making up two mental lists. What is going to be up to me under these circumstances is what is not going to be up to me under these circumstances. And what you do then after you have that list, not only you go over the list over and over to remind yourself you know, afresh that, okay, this is up to me, this is not up to me, but also then you're supposed to be focusing on the first list, what is up to you, and trying to develop this attitude of equanimity and acceptance toward the second list, toward the things that are not up to you. That is difficult, obviously, Mm -hmm. because we have a tendency to want to control the outcomes, right? We want certain things to go in a certain way, and we are really low to say, no, I don't don't control it. It's not up to me. I mean, in the case of going to the ER, one of the outcomes might be they're going to die. If it is a life-threatening situation, you might die. And we recoil from the whole idea. It's like, oh, well, if I die, I die. But that actually is, according to the Stoics, the only rational and useful attitude you could possibly have. You could say, well, in fact, one of the first things you asked me early on why I was so interested in Epictetus. One of the very first things that I read by Epictetus is right at the beginning of the first volume of the discourses where he says, well... Do I have to die? Apparently not today. And if it's not today, then let me not think about dying. On the other hand, it is the time for lunch. So let's think about lunchtime and <laughs> what we're going to eat for lunch. I mean, I remember I laughed out loud when I read this thing. Like, but then I stopped and I said, you know, this guy really is onto something. Yes, we all have to die. And at some point, that moment will come and you have to deal with it. But the only thing you can do about it is acceptance. There's nothing, you know, it's, it's an inevitable thing. Meanwhile, however, if it is not today, Then I can do other things. Then I have other priorities, and I can redirect my mind and my attention to something that is more productive than dwelling on the fact that one of these days I'm going to die. Seneca, who was a little older, about a contemporary of Epictetus, a little older, and uh, he writes, you know, we die every day, meaning that every day we get closer and closer, obviously, to that moment. But he says, you know, when I get up in the morning and I realize that I probably have yet another day ahead of me, I say, yay! That's something to celebrate, so let me see what I can do with this day. And then if tomorrow there isn't going to be another one, then fine. One of these days it will have to happen anyway.
3: So this dichotomy of control, this grouping things into things I can change and can't change, or can do something about. There's another stoic philosopher, Bill Irvine, who we actually talked to not that long ago, but he talked about breaking this into what he calls a trichotomy of control, meaning things we can control, things we can influence, and things that we have no control over. You felt like that weakens the core piece of this. Talk a little bit about why you don't think that model is as useful.
0: I know Bill very well. We're friends and with all due respect, and I think he's just wrong on that one. (laughs) 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 What it does comes pretty natural. One of the reasons I said earlier on that I don't like to label this concept that we're talking about, dichotomy of control, is because people immediately start thinking along similar lines to what Bill suggested. But wait a minute. There are things that I control, there are things that I don't control, and then there's a bunch of stuff in between right? Yep. And yes, you can think that way, but then you're kind of missing the point. The point is that in a sense, almost everything is in between, right? There are very few things that you literally do not control. Like I don't control the weather, that's for sure. Right, right. What I do control is, of course, checking the weather forecast, and decided whether to bring an umbrella or not to bring an umbrella. Right. right? And if I do bring an umbrella, then it might seem like I'm now into one of those intermediate situations where I have some control over things. I may not control the weather, but I control the umbrella, so I don't get wet as a result of it, right? It seems like a perfect example of something that is in between. But the point of Epictetus is, yes, but think about that particular situation very carefully. Everything that you can influence itself turns out to be dividable into these two categories, the bit that you do control completely and the bit that you don't control at all. When the two come together, you have something intermediate, you have something that you are influencing, right? So in the example that I just gave, again, if you think about it for a minute, the only bits that I really control are my judgments. Do I need to check the weather forecast before I leave? That's a judgment call. And do I need to bring my umbrella or not? That's a judgment call. Once I made those decisions, then the rest is actually not up to me. Even if I bring my umbrella, I might still get wet because, you know, it may pour down really heavy or with a lot of wind and whatever it is, and so my umbrella is entirely useless, right? Or my umbrella would be very effective, but whether the umbrella is effective or not, it's really not up to me. It's a question for the weather. The only part that I control was the judgment call. Do I bring the umbrella or do I not, right? So I think that um, there is a danger. In fact, Bill has been warned about that by other modern Stoic authors like uh, Don Robertson, that if you start talking in terms of of intermediate situations, then you kind of lose the force of the metaphor. And, and, and all of a sudden now you, you don't have a guidance for action because if almost everything turns out to be intermediate, then the answer to anything is, well, it depends. right? Right. It begins to depend on the details. Instead, if you go with the actual dichotomy of control, then it's very clear. You have to remember only one thing. The only thing that is up to you are your judgments. That's it. Your decisions to act or not to act, that's it.
3: start talking about real world situations. So if we were to talk about health, for example, I don't mean your trip to the hospital, but let's say health in general, right? Mm -hmm. There are certainly lots of actions I can take that make it more potentially likely that I will have good health. Yes. But as you say, at the end of the day, whether or not I do have good health, I don't have control over, right? You know, I can do the action, that gives me, you know, based on what we know, today's best guess of what causes good health, but it's a roll of the dice, you know, to, to, to some degree. And I think, to your point, when you look at anything closely enough, we do see that we have the thing we can do, and then there's the point where that ends, and then what happens after is up to us. But we can make our best guess about how our actions will
0: impact the world? Yes, that's right. So I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that actually, an v- earlier version of the dichotomy of control is found in Cicero. And Cicero uses an interesting metaphor, which is known as the metaphor of the archer. He says, consider you're an archer trying to hit an enemy soldier with your arrows. Right, What is up to you and what is not up to you? And he goes through a list of things. And it turns out, however, that the only things that are up to the archer, again, are decisions judgments. right? So he can decide how much to practice archery before the battle. That's always a good idea. He can choose which arrows and bow to to actually uh, take with him in battle. Uh, He can decide how to take care of those arrows and bow. He can decide where to aim, when to aim, and when to let the arrow go. All of those are decisions. They're all judgment calls. But once the arrow leaves the bow, that's it. Nothing else is under his control, right? Uh, The enemy soldier might turn in the last moment and see the arrow coming and that's it. He ducks and the best shot is ruined or a gust of wind might interfere with the shot or all sorts of things could happen. And you don't have any more decision-making on those things. Your will stops the moment in which you actually let go of the arrow. The same goes with health in general, you know, without the ER trips kind of stuff. Sure, I can make a lot of judgment calls. I have to make a lot of judgment calls mm-hmm. based on what I think is the best information, right? So I can say, hey, uh, I need to get to the gym at least, uh, you know, three times a week or for, for a certain number of hours. I can uh, decide to eat in a, in a certain way, you know, decent portions, uh, healthy foods, et etc. Et All of those are my decisions, And they will certainly influence the outcome. There is no question about it. But in terms of the outcome itself, I can do all of those things
3: and still get sick. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think it is helpful to keep that line pretty clear. Now, I think where it gets difficult, and this is something I thought maybe we could talk about next, which is one of the disciplines of stoicism. We talk about three disciplines, and maybe we'll get to all of them, but one of them is called the discipline of desire. Yes. And... I'd love to talk about that in how it also relates to the dichotomy of control, because what people will say is, "Okay, great. I may not be able to control that thing, but I still really care deeply about it and I really want it you know, I feel very attached to it. So talk about how the discipline of desire and aversion plays into that.
0: First of all, you're absolutely right that the discipline of desire and aversion, as it's called, it's directly connected to the dichotomy control, that the two are very deeply connected. So the three disciplines that you mentioned are actually, as far as we know, they are Epictetus's invention. So they are actually one of Epictetus' original contributions to Stoicism, which incidentally, let me open a small parenthesis here, makes a point that Stoicism has been changing from the beginning. Epictetus was living five centuries after the origin of Stoicism, and he was still making... You know, changes into the philosophy. So uh, when people say, oh, we should stick with the original, there's no such thing as the original, because uh, philosophies and religions in general change over time. As soon as somebody has the initial idea, then somebody else is going to challenge that idea and make changes. So the three disciplines are one of Epictetus' original contributions to uh, Stoicism. And there are three of them, as you, as you mentioned, uh, desire and aversion, action and assent. Maybe we'll get to the other two. But desire and aversion, the first thing that we need to understand here is that there is an issue with the English translation of these terms, especially as far as desire and aversion are concerned. First of all, aversions are the opposite of desires. Mm-hmm. Right? So desire is something I want, aversion is something that I don't want. right? Uh, I have a desire for chocolate and I have an aversion to vanilla or something like that. However, the English words in this case are misleading. Because, you know, very often uh, it has happened to me that people say, but wait a minute, I don't control my desires. If I have a desire for something, it just comes to me. It's an emotion. Yes, that is true as far as the modern English word desire is concerned. But that is not at all what Epictetus meant. If you go to the original Greek, desire is not exactly a a great translation of that terminology. What Epictetus means is it's translated better as endorsed values, or in the case of aversions, endorsed these values. So you make conscious decisions about what you value and what you do not value, or what you should value, let's put it that way, or should not value. For instance, let's go back to one of your earlier examples. You said, you know, I can do all sorts of things in order to improve my health. Well, that reflects a desire in the sense of Epictetus, Mm -hmm. that is the judgment that health is valuable and sickness is not valuable, right? Is a disvalue. Now, it may not come natural to you to have certain values or disvalues. For instance, I do realize that going to the gym is something that improves or at least maintains my health. But it's certainly, I have never, never had in my life a desire to go to the gym. (laughs) When I get to the gym and, you know, the nice lady behind the counter says, uh, you know, enjoy your workout, I say, what do you mean? Uh, This is not a nice meal or a glass of wine. I'm not going to enjoy the workout. (laughs) But I do it because I decided, I made the conscious decision that this is a positive value for me, that exercise is a positive value, right? Even though I don't desire it. In fact, i kind of averse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In In the English sense of the term, I actually have an aversion toward exercise. But in the Epictetian sense of the term, I have a desire, meaning that I decided consciously that physical fitness and exercise is actually a positive value. So the discipline of desire and aversion, therefore, is not about reshaping our desires in the normal English sense of the term. It's about... Prioritizing, or more likely reprioritizing things. So Epictetus told these students that you probably have the wrong priorities in life and therefore you should change them. <laughs> uh, now, in fact, he went on and said, you probably think that health and wealth and fame and reputation and career, you think that those are good things, don't you? And he says, fool, you're fools. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Epictetus was pretty direct with, with There's his There's the direct
3: part you like.
0: Yeah, he called them fools or slaves, which, you know, coming from a slave is kind mm. of interesting. Slaves because they were slave to common opinion, right? They were not thinking with their brains. They were slaves to common opinion. Oh, your parents and your friends tell you that being rich and famous is a good thing, so you just automatically agree. It's like, what, are you a fool? Or you know, or are you a slave of other people's opinion? So Epictetus says, no, those things are, have value. I mean, he's, he's not crazy. He's not saying, you know, that those things are without any value. But those are not the really important things in life. There is, in fact, only one real important thing in life, and that's your character, which for Epictetus is synonymous with your ability to judgment, of, of judgment, your, your ability to arrive at good judgment. Now, that may sound strange, but think about it for a second, and you realize that Epictetus is right. Why is it that the only thing that is truly valuable in life is judgment? Because from your judgments depend how you use everything else. Wealth, for instance, let's take money and you know wealth in general. Well, wealth is a good thing if you use it well. If you don't use it well... It's a bad thing, you know, if you're wealthy and then start corrupting politicians or buying your way out of, uh, you know, criminal record or something. And it's a bad thing. It's not a, it's not a good thing. In fact, another one of the things that Epictetus tells us right at the beginning of the discourses is, you know, so you want some money. Good for you. Now, how are you going to spend your money? How are you going to use that money? Who is it going to tell you how to use your money? The money isn't going to tell you. Your faculty of judgment. Yes. And the same goes for everything else. We tend to think that health is a good thing. Like, wow, who, who would argue that? Well, I don't know. If I were thinking of a dictator, for instance, in this, in this moment, I hope he's going to get sick. Health is not necessarily a good thing. It depends on how you use it. If you use your health to oppress other people, then it's not a good thing the people would be better off if you were sick and dying rather than than being healthy. The same goes with wealth. Reputation, well, the s- same idea. If you have a good reputation and you use it well, that is, in fact, indeed a good thing. But if you use your reputation in order to corrupt other people, to swindle other people, et cetera, et cetera, then it's not a good thing. So it turns out, therefore, that there are no good or bad things Per se, the things become good or bad only because you use them in a certain way, right? And I use that analogy also for things that are more controversial these days, such as certain technologies. Like you know, it's pretty common these days to rail against social media. It's like, oh, you know, the disasters of humanity are this, this it comes. They all originate from the social media. But social media are a tool, right? It's up to you how to use it. In other words, it's up to your judgment how to use it, right? So. Are there bad uses of you know things like Facebook and Twitter? Hell yes. Are there good uses? Yes. I am regularly on social media and I use them only and exclusively either to keep in touch with my relatives from overseas, and that is a good thing, or to promote my work and the work of people that I think is worth reading. And that is also a good thing. There's nothing bad about that. Now, of course, if on the other hand, you use social media to harass people or to promote fake news and stuff like that, then it's bad. But it's not the technology that it's good or bad. The technology is neutral. Like for the Stoics, every external Is neutral. What makes it a good external or a bad external is only our judgment. That's why Epictetus says to his students, you really need to reprioritize things. The only thing that you should be desiring in the sense of prioritize is good judgments. And the only things that you should be averse to is bad judgments. And then everything else follows from that.
3: What's the process of going from the desires that arise? somewhat naturally, maybe I'll stay away from the word naturally because I think Stoics use that word in a certain way. I'm going to walk away from that word. Desires that arise as a result of either our biology or our conditioning Right. right. And that conditioning could come from lots of different places, but desires that arise through our, our biology or our conditioning, right. which are to seek pleasure and avoid pain, the sort of desires you were talking about. That's right. What's the process of going from those things that arise to cultivating wanting a good character? Because that can seem like a pretty big gap right. and a lot of retraining that needs to go to get to that point.
0: There is a gap there, and it's an important one, which the Stoics do address. And yes, it is difficult. That's why Stoicism is like Buddhism or, again, like Christianity. It's a lifelong commitment. You know, It's training for the entire life. It's not like you're going to just do it today and then say, okay, I'm done. <laughs> uh, right? uh, in a sense, in fact, it's like going to the gym. Right. Imagine if I went to the gym, uh, again, to use the same metaphor, and then I asked my trainer you know, explanations about how to use properly the different machines and the weights, etc., and then I walk out and never come back in. Mm-hmm. Well, i have done nothing. Uh, I understood the theory, Right. Now, now yeah. I know how to use the machine. But if I actually don't commit and don't come back every day and use the machines, uh, my muscles and my aerobic capacity aren't going to go anywhere other than down. Yeah. Right. So it's the same thing with your character. The commitment is on a daily basis. Now, what about that gap that you were just talking about? That's why the Stoics have put so much emphasis on reason. Or Epictetus uses the Greek word prohiresis, which is translated as judgment, again, your faculty of judgment, which is right here. The frontal parietal lobes of your brain are the ones that are in charge of your rational decision-making. And basically, you can think of stoicism as a lifelong program to improve your rational decision-making. That's really what it comes down to. Now, you're saying, well, what about the gap between our, shall we call it, naturally Epicurean Attitude, You know, I want pleasure and I don't want pain, right? That's basically Pecunian philosophy. How do I go from there to things that actually do require pain and maybe even even to forego some pleasures, right? Well, in the same way in which you do other things, we use the metaphor of either exercise or health several times Mm -hmm. in this conversation. And for a reason, the Stoics themselves do. The Stoics often go back to either health, they say that a philosopher meaning a teacher of philosophy, is like a doctor. In fact, Epictetus at one point says, philosophy should feel like going to the doctor. If you're not in pain when you come out of it, you've done nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Or they use the metaphor of the gym. The English word gym comes from gymnasium, which is the uh, Roman translation of the original Greek word. And that's because... The Stoics themselves often were spending a lot of time in the gymnasium uh, taking care of their their body, not just their mind. So it's the same idea. Another example, which has also to do with, with health, but I think that addresses that gap that you're talking about. I think I'm not the only person in the world who would rather eat and drink to his own pleasure and contentment than not, right? So I have that little problem. There is a gap between what my reason tells me I should eat and drink and what my body wants and craves. Right? And that is, in fact, a result, of in part, certainly of biology, mm-hmm. and in part, even of social pressures and things like that. You know, when you go out for, with friends, oh, have a second drink, right? You know, or have a third drink or something like that. That's a social pressure. But there is also a result of biology. I mean, evolutionary biologists made the argument that one of the reasons we have so much trouble uh, controlling our eating habits is because we evolved in a situation hundreds of thousands of years ago where food was not available all the time and cheap, right? As it is today. I mean, today, if I feel like eating something, I literally have food available 24 hours a day for cheap, yep. right? If we were back in the Pleistocene, I would have to get up, get my tools and start hunting, right? Yep. So that's, that's a whole different thing. Totally. Um, yeah. So we have these cravings for eating and drinking that are disproportionate either for bi- because of biological reasons or because of social mm-hmm. reasons. They're disproportionate with what is reasonable. But if we are responsible adults and we try to do the right thing for ourselves in this case, what do we do? I look at, uh, you know, like just last night I went out with friends and we had drinks. And then, of course, the waiter comes around and says, would you like another one? And everybody's looking at me and I look at the weather and I said, I would, but I'm not going to have it. <laughs> Right. So that's where your prohiresis kicks in. That's where your faculty of judgment kicks in and says, look, of course you're craving another drink. That would be nice. It would be even more relaxed than you're than you're now and you're with friends, you know, why not? And your reason says, Well, the reason why not is because you're gonna be feel sick later or this is not a good thing in general. That is exactly the same gap that you're talking about between behaviors that we crave naturally and behaviors that reason tells us we should engage in. And you can, again, think of the entire point of Stoic training as bridging that gap. That is the reason why, for instance, Seneca says at some point in one of his letters to his friend Lucilius that are kind of an informal curriculum in, in Stoic philosophy, he says, virtue is nothing but right reason. So when the Stoics talk about what the virtuous thing to do, well, the virtuous thing to do is the reasonable thing to do. And essentially, the rest is just practice. Once you understand that, once you understand that there is that gap and that your goal in life is to fill the gap so that you align your actual behavior with what is in your best interests, as well as the Stoics would say, in the interest of humanity in general, then that's it. You understood the theory. Now it's a question of practice. So it's very similar to once your trainer has told you how to use the basic machinery in the gym, then you're done. The theory is not difficult. This is not rocket science. (laughs) The practice, however, takes commitment. And, of course, inevitably you will slide back right? There will be situations where, to keep using the same example, I will go out with my friends and this time I'm going to say yes to the waiter for the second drink and then later I'm going to regret it and I'm going to say, oh, damn it, I shouldn't have done that. Well, the Stoics have an answer for that as well. Don't indulge in regret. Regret is a waste of time. Regret means that you are emotionally distraught by something you did. But the past, by definition, is not under your control. So what the hell are you doing, spending your time, uh, you know, beating yourself up? What you should do is to learn from the past and try not to repeat that in the future and say, look, let me analyze that situation. What made me say yes when I should have said no? Right? What kind of circumstances? And what can I do better? How can I preempt that the next time that something like this happens? That's what stoic training is about. It's about reflecting. That's why one of the major tools in the stoic toolbox is something that is referred to as philosophical journaling, where every night you analyze your more important actions and you ask yourself, what did I do wrong? What did I do right? And what could I do better the next time around? And again, the point is not to indulge in regret but to learn from your experiences and then warn yourself prepare yourself for the next time around it's like okay here's the plan here's what i'm going to do next but never never beat yourself up Uh, if you made a mistake fine fight it under the mistake category we're all human beings after all And then next time, try to remember, oh, wait a minute, under similar circumstances, I made a mistake. So let me try to do different this time around.
3: Well, Massimo, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. There's so many different things we could follow up on, and maybe we will do it another time. But thank you for being here. And I hope that whatever was going on health-wise with you is resolved, even though it's not in either your eyes' control.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure being here.